0: Welcome, everybody. This morning, how are we today? Good. Today, I've come prepared. Last week, people told me that I need to stop sniffling on stage. It gives the wrong impression in the COVID world. And so I will say that I'm battling a little cold because Texas had an 85-degree swing in seven days. That's not my fault, everybody, all right? So I got some tea up here today, and so give me some grace if I turn and reach for it. It's just a, it's just a planned pause that we all probably need more of, all right? Welcome to Crossroads this morning. I'm excited that we are here. We're going to start every Sunday like we do before we teach, as we come together and we recognize right here and right now, uh, God brought us here for a purpose. God has a word for us today and that he's active in our world. And what that means is that we need to do some work. What that means is that we need to put aside so often a critical culture that we live in and come here and say, how can we contribute to the conversation of faith that, that God's having with us this morning, the Holy Spirit speaking into our spirit. So we're going to take a minute and just pray. We're going to take a minute and just settle up and say, hey, God, what are you trying to teach me today? So I'll ask that, that you pray with me. I'll ask if you're comfortable that you take a minute and just pray silently that God might speak in your spirit. And I'll ask that you pray for me that God might use my preparation to reveal more of his goodness. So let's pray before you go God, I'm thankful to be here, like always, that we live in a place where we can come together freely and open your scripture and hear from the Holy Spirit as you guide us, as you teach us, as you form us into the image of Jesus. As we talk about Jesus today, Holy Spirit, I pray that you show us where he's been active in changing our lives, because that's what he's in the business of. I'd ask if you're comfortable, just take a couple seconds. And just ask this morning that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit as we open the scriptures. And I'd ask that you pray for me, that God might use the preparation to show us more of, of why He's good and worthy of worship this morning. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. We're in Matthew 9 this morning, verses 1 through 8. If you've got a Bible, you can go there. I don't know what everybody's history was like with with jesus but i don't remember a time in my life when jesus wasn't a part of my life i grew up in the church i went through all three stages of jesus growing up the part where you really want to go to the church you know on sunday mornings the part when you know you should go to church and the part when you're just drugged into church by your parents because they're hoping it's going to do something you've been there before you know I've been through all three phases. I feel like the kid, you know that old joke where it's a Sunday school class and the Sunday school teacher says, what's brown and furry and has a fuzzy tail, and the kid raises his hand and says, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel, you know? I'm, I'm that kid in some respects. I grew up in the church all my life. Jesus has been a part of my life. He's had a profound impact on my life. And I think when we kind of shift our perspective a bit and, and, and get some perspective, we realize that Jesus has had a profound impact on who we are as a culture. Whether you trust him as God or not, Jesus has impacted who we are and how we got here, whether you come to church or come to Jesus because you want to, because you feel like you should, or because you're being drugged here by somebody who wants you to be more like Jesus. There's a study last year, that came out. and It said 52% of Americans believe that Jesus is a good teacher and only a good teacher. And that's true. You know that? Jesus was a phenomenal teacher. He really was. There's a couple books written about how he changed, how we think about modern constructs that we buy into now. Forgiveness is one of them. So there's a quote that I I came across by Conan the Barbarian and Genghis Khan, and they asked him, what is best in life? And both of these rulers said, what's absolutely best in life is to crush your enemies and see them driven before you and hear the lamentations of their women. Jesus didn't teach that. There was a, a professor from, named Hannah at Princeton, and she said, and I quote, she said, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. She attributes the value of forgiveness in our current context and culture to the teachings of Jesus. He was a great teacher. There's a Norwegian philosopher and teacher who actually came about and he talked about the role of children in the first century world and how they didn't really value children and a lot more children died because they weren't cared for. And this guy goes on to say, literally, he wrote a book that said, when children became people, the birth of childhood in early Christianity. He attributes the teachings of Jesus to shaping our constructs of forgiveness and compassion. Jesus was a great teacher. He really was. But here's my question this morning. I've been shaped by Jesus for most of my life. The world's been shaped by Jesus. There are more books written about Jesus than anybody else. There's more pieces of art about Jesus than any more else. Anyone else, there's more songs written about Jesus. Sure, they all sound the same, but that's another problem for another day than anyone else. Jesus takes up a large portion of who we are as a people group. My question is why? What makes him different than other teachers? There is a uh, Yale historian, and he wrote this, I love this phrase. He said, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about Jesus of Nazareth, He has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? My question this morning is Jesus completely changed our world. Why was he different than anybody else? Lots of good teachers, even some good healers. How'd he get it done? And this morning, we're in a text like we have been for the past six or so weeks about Jesus doing some delivering or doing some healing. And if you're in Matthew 9, you can go there. Let's just start by reading. It says initially in our text that Jesus. Someone had brought um, a paralytic to Jesus lying on a stretcher. This is in verse 2. And you might know this story before. It's in three of the four Gospels. Matthew tells it a little differently. This is the story where the people like tear down somebody's house so that somebody can get to Jesus, you know? They're on the roof and they start digging into the roof and lowering their friend from the roof into the house so that this man, who's a paralytic, might actually get to Jesus. Matthew doesn't focus on that, but it's the same story that we read. And it's one of my favorite stories about Jesus because it shows so many different things about what we need. I love, as a tangent to this story, I love that, that really it is all about the people alongside of sometimes because here's something we don't like to talk about as much in our current climate and culture of radical individualism, that your faith will not be sufficient for you all the time. That's why we say at CBC, you can't do life alone. That, that sometimes in your life and in your world, you are the one that is carrying others and sometimes you're the one that needs to be carried. And you've got to recognize that. This man comes to Jesus because his friends saw the need and said, you can't get there, but I can get you there. And that works on a physical level, but it also works on a faith level, and it works on an emotional level, and it works on a, I have a small child and just need help sometime level. We were built we were built for dependence. And In a an radically individualistic society, sometimes we lose the beauty of dependence. But following Jesus is all about dependence. It's about depending on God who made us, who formed us, who gives us marching orders and says this is what good life looks like. And so our story starts with Jesus like it has for the past six or so weeks where he finds somebody who's in need of something. He finds somebody that needs to be healed. And these men come to Jesus, and Jesus looks at this group of guys and says he saw their faith. Which is an interesting phrase. Because the question then remains, how do you, how do you see faith? faith is something that technically isn't seen it's a belief in something but it kind of goes farther in this construct to say well actually mature faith is something that can be seen it's when our attitude and our actions line up a little bit and we actually live out what we deeply believe that's what mature faith is immature faith says i believe this but i don't have the discipline yet to keep living it out that's what i've been talking about over the past since january i'm trying to get up earlier in the morning i'm going to be very careful how i say that phrase before My child gets out of bed. I want to get out of bed. I want my actions to support my attitude that sleep is important and I'm a better father, I'm a better pastor, I'm a better husband if I have some me time in the morning. That's maturity, everybody. So when Jesus says that he saw their faith, he literally saw faith because he saw the action that went along with the attitude that changes who these people are and are becoming. That's what mature faith is. That's why we live faith out. And when it says he saw their faith, the text doesn't necessarily tell us whether it was the faith of the friends or the faith of the paralytic, right? But I guarantee you it doesn't seem to me here that the paralytic is kicking and scream, screaming <laughs> Sorry, when he's brought in front of Jesus. So you have this scene. It's really important. You have the scene where there's this man who wants to be healed. And at this point, Jesus had done quite a few healings. Jesus had raised somebody from the dead. He would cured a leper. He'd calmed some sea and some storms. Jesus had, had released people from demonic activity and captivity in their life. Jesus had started delivering people from the things that ailed them. This one's a little different because this man that's ailed by something comes in front of Jesus and look at what he says. He looks at the paralytic and he says, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. You gotta understand that's not what this man was asking for. <laughs> and if you're like me, I'm like, well, that, that's fantastic. But how about that walking thing? Can we start there and then maybe get to the forgiven thing? Oh, I'm, I'm so glad that my sins are forgiven. I'd also really like to walk to hug you at this point, but I can't because you left one of them out. I think what we see in our text is Jesus jumping to a conclusion for a specific purpose. And, and we've got to wrestle with two things here how the first century world saw sins, both individually and corporately, and how we see it. Because Jesus sees this paralytic, and he gives something that wasn't asked for, and there's a why behind it. See, we we typically try and downplay, or we typically try and detach the physical from the spiritual or the emotional in our culture. And, and it's coming back together, and we're, we're starting to realize once again that we're all interconnected, that how we feel and, and what we eat and how much sleep we get affects who we are as a person. So this idea of the emotional and the physical and the spiritual aren't as detached as maybe we've made them out to be. There was a study done by Stanford called the Stanford Forgiveness Project. It trained 260 adults in the rhythms of forgiveness in a six-week course. 70% after they learned about forgiveness and tried to practice it reported a decrease in their feelings of hurtness. 13% experienced reduced anger, and this is my favorite one. 27% experienced fewer physical complaints, pain and gastrointestinal upsetness or dizziness, etc., because they felt healthier spiritually and emotionally. I think there's this tie between who we are as a person and who we are as a person, physically and spiritually. The Bible makes that tie, too. i want to read you some of Psalm 32, where the writer is talking to this tie between how he feels and how he feels. He says, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there's still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment, for you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The scriptures seemingly tie emotional wellness to physical wellness. Jesus sees this man that is not well physically, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And that brings us to how they saw sin in the first century world. It's a little different than how we see it now. We have somewhat of a detached view of sin. We see sin affecting either me or someone else, and that's kind of it. But the Bible talks about the relationship between sin and wellness in a couple different ways. At the same time, there's a tension there. So if you remember, there's a story in the Old Testament where Moses, big time God-fearing leader, let my people go, delivered his people. And Matthew makes quite a bit of ties between Jesus being the second Moses to deliver his people once and for all. Moses is leading his people in the wilderness and his sister starts talking badly about Moses' leadership, starts throwing some shade, you know, at Moses. And because this happens, because she speaks badly of his leadership, whom God appointed, she gets a skin disease. Think about that. They spoke badly of God's appointed leaders, and they got a skin disease. God is good. All right. I just want you to I just want that to weigh on you. Let's go home, everybody. All right. But, but then she repented and the skin disease let up. So what this did in the first century world, if you were a Jewish man or woman, they had this really deep-seated belief that anything that was wrong with you physically was a product of sin in your life. And they taught it. They taught that if X, Y, and Z happened, it's because you did something to cause it to happen. But at the same time, the Bible points to the story of Job. You know Job. Job was a righteous man, a very righteous man. He did nothing wrong, and he was afflicted with time after time after again. Physical pains and financial pain and emotional pain when he lost his family. And and the scripture is really clear. In that moment, there is no correlation between his sin and his pain. Both exist at the same time. You see these come together in John chapter 9. So in John chapter 9, there's a story of a blind man. And Jesus walks up and... The religious teachers look at Jesus and they said, this guy's blind. Was it his sin or was his parents' sin that caused him to be this way? Remember that story? And Jesus said, neither, neither. He was born this way so that in this moment I could show you who I am, which is kind of something else to think about. That God took something that was intrinsically evil and said, I'm going to make it good because I'm bigger than the evil. What we see in the first century world is this tie between causality and sin, causality of sin and the physical pain of deformity. There's a couple different rabbis that speak into this. A couple different rabbis talk about this relationship between um, sin and sickness. One said, no sick person is cured from sickness until all his sins have been forgiven. Another rabbi said, the sick does not arise from his sickness until his sins are forgiven. All right, so if we're asking the question, why did Jesus say your sins are forgiven when he didn't ask for it? Imagine living in a land where for your entire life, You've been sick for your entire life. You've been paralyzed. And for your entire life, people have told you it's your fault. They've told you it's because you sinned. They've told you it's because you're bad or your parents are bad. This oppressive guilt weighed on you. Jesus looks at this man and he says, My son, my child, which is a term of endearment in the original language. He says, My son, my child, your sins are forgiven. Jesus looks beyond the symptom of the sin and sees the real pain this man is going through and says, You are forgiven. I am not mad at you. Think about that. It's a huge moment of compassion where the love of God spoke into the life of this man just how he needed it, right when he needed it, where no one else saw it. It's a beautiful moment. Every once in a while, after a Sunday morning, people will stop me and say things like, Charlie, slow down, you talk too fast. Um, That's every week. But every once in a while, they'll stop and say, hey, God really showed me this this morning. And so naturally, I take credit. And <clears throat> naturally, I say God is good, and that's what he does. Because if, if you hear nothing else, hear this. The story of the Bible is a story where God pursues his people out of an immense love for his people. The story of the Bible is not man finding God. It's God finding man from sin in Genesis chapter 3 in the first place where Adam and Eve ran away to you and me right now, the story of the Bible is God pursuing his people and saying, I see where you're at. I see your hurt. I see your pain. Let me step into that pain and show you it doesn't have to be this way forever, whether that's right here, right now, or that's one day when Jesus comes back. The story of the Bible is a passionate God pursuing his people because he passionately loves them. That's the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what it means when we said Jesus came to earth. So if we're going to understand why he forgave this person and didn't heal him right away, one, it's because he saw what this man needed. And out of compassion, he said, I see that you need to understand this isn't your fault. You are forgiven. But that doesn't go over so well. If you read through the rest of the story, the next phrase says, some of the experts of the law said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. And so what we see, what we see is not just that he's being judged from this one man's perspective, but from the teachers of the law. So it's not just about how sin is interpreted in fiscal pain for the individual, but also how it's interpreted in the corporate world of the first century. See so these teachers... And they had this whole system, and they had this whole process about how you remove sin from the camp. Because one thing that was understood was not only did your fiscal plight, was it a result of your sin, but was also understood is that all sin, all of it, was sin against God. That's why when David sins in his really famous psalm in Psalm 51, he says, not just God, I've sinned against this man or this woman. He said, against you, you above all, I have sinned. He understood that in something we, I think, sometimes forget that our sin has consequences well beyond us. Our sin has consequences that help shape and break the world that we live in. Our sin has consequences that ultimately roll up and affect the God who said, don't do this because it hurts the design of this world and it hurts that which I care for. All of our sin, all of it, whether you see it or not, hurts God. All of our sin is against God, ultimately. So, So when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, what was he doing? If all sin is against God, only God has the power to release people from the effects of sin. And so when he says to this man, you're forgiven, these teachers of the law looked at him and said, you don't have the authority to do that. Only one person does. You're not him. Jesus is making a statement about his authority. He's saying, not only am I him, but let me tell you why I'm doing this. So in the first century world, they had a temple and they would would offer sacrifices for sin. They would go into this courtyard and they'd bring an animal or they'd buy an animal there because they didn't want to tote their animal to the temple that day. And they'd bring it to the priest and the priest would take the animal, kill the animal. We did a series on Leviticus. I've heard it was amazing. We're going to bring it back, everybody. And they would kill the animal and they'd say, your sin caused this to happen. It was this process by which people translated the weight of their sin to what it actually did in their world. It caused pain. So there's this whole process by which people would bring animals to priests and they would watch, they would watch this priest kill this animal and they would know right then and right there, my actions caused this to happen. It didn't have to be that way. And you would go from something that was white to something that was stained red. It was visual. It was emotional. It was spiritual. It was a process by which people understood what their sin had caused. And in a moment, Jesus gets rid of that and just says, I've forgiven you. There's no sacrifice, there's no blood, there's no weightiness, it seems like. So these people are noticeably upset because they had a system in place. And Jesus seemingly makes light of their whole system. There's a couple years ago, I still get grief for it on staff. This is probably seven years ago, I think, maybe eight. I don't know, guys. It's been a while I've been on the staff. And I was leading through communion one Sunday when I was teaching. We're into communion today and communion is an amazing experience we get to do together as followers of Jesus to remind us why we're here in the first place. And so I'm going through why communion is important and big and great and grand, and I got to the bread part and I said, if you were here for this, I'm so sorry, I've grown. I said, Take the bread and just pop that bad boy right in your mouth, right? <laughs> and then I said, You're gonna take the juice and you're gonna sip it. Shouldn't have said it. That was my fault, right? I spent five minutes talking about why it was important and good, but in a single moment, I simply trivialized something that should never be trivialized. I think partly the teachers of the law are seeing Jesus just say, you're forgiven, and saying, you have, you have completely broke down a system that had a point and purpose and a place. I think they're mad at Jesus because not only is he defining himself as God, he's redefining the relationship between God's people and God himself because they didn't go through the right channels or processes. Because you got to understand... In this moment, this is the first time that Jesus ever says this to somebody. This is the first time Jesus ever says, your sins are forgiven. It's a really big moment. It's a really big moment. And why it's a big moment is because really in the Old Testament, the way they set up their system of forgiveness, their system of sacrifice, was hopefully they would do these things that would make them better people. It would make them better followers of God. It would make them better at what God wanted them to be. Here was the problem throughout the whole Old Testament is no matter how many times they sacrificed, they never became better. They never became more God-fearing. They never became all that God wanted them to be. Time and time again, they kept falling into the cyclical nature of sin. Time and time again, they couldn't fix the actual problem by sacrificing animals. Time and time again, they kept coming back to the same places, offering the same sacrifices, saying we're in the same situation as before, and the same pain that sin has caused hasn't gone away. Time and time again, they deal with the situation and the pain of sin, but don't actually deal with. Sin. In a moment, Jesus is dealing with sin. I think we suffer from the the same problem in a way. There was uh, a way of thinking called modernity. You've probably heard of it. It kind of rose out of the 18th century with a guy named Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am started something called the Enlightenment, which basically taught that the more we know, the better we'll be. A more enlightened society is a better society. The more stuff we know about each other and about the world and about science and about fill in the blank leads us to be a better people, a more enlightened people. We grow as a people when we grow our knowledge of people. That was kind of the thought. It held on for about 200 years. In about 1930, most scholars and philosophers talk about the fact that the modernity bubble broke. 1930 was when World War II happened. 1930 was when concentration camps happened. 1930 was when we realized that we've gotten smarter but not better as a people. 1930 was when we realized that we know more and we know more about the world we live in and about each other, but we still have problems that cause massive pain and suffering in our world. We can learn all we want to, just because we learn doesn't mean we're a better people. There's a crisis moment for us as a people because we have to ask that same question. Are we a better people now than we were two, three, four hundred years ago? We might have more money and we might have more technology and we might have laptops in every home and we might have Google listening to us all the time. We might have all of those things, but are we kinder? Are we more compassionate? Are we rooting the world of the pain that's caused by the brokenness that we brought in by sin? See, I think what's happening in our text, one of the... Deals that Jesus is actually dealing with as he is for the first time not just dealing with a symptom of the cause he's dealing with the cause itself he's dealing with the underlying issue of sin for the first time because we we've gone through different deliverances by now Jesus has made sick people better we can make sick people better modern medicine's pretty great Jesus made people survive a storm we've gotten pretty good at surviving those too unless it's an ice storm in Texas then don't get me started right. We have gotten pretty good at at controlling the world around us. And so Jesus does all these things, delivers all these people from all these different type of problems. But here, for the first time ever, he actually deals with the problem. My question is simply this. If for the scope of humanity, we've asked the same question, how can we be better and we're not better by now? Maybe the problem isn't external, it's internal. Jesus looks at a man and says, let me deal with you internally so that you might feel the freedom externally. It's a big moment when you forgive sins. Nobody had done that before. There's a theologian and a philosopher's name is G.K. Chesterton and in the early 1900s the New York Times I think it was wrote an article, it's an open-ended question and he basically said what's wrong with the world, why is the world broken and, and they, they, they tagged if you will a bunch of thinkers and philosophers and he wrote back in the paper and he simply said dear sirs, I am, thanks G.K. you know It's that idea that for the first time you have a teacher, not just teaching about how we can be better. You have a teacher or healer, not just saying, "Let me fix your arm or your leg or your skin disease." But he's saying, "Let me actually, let me actually fix you." Here's the difference between Jesus. Here's why people keep showing up. Here's why we're talking about Jesus two thousand years later. Here's why the world revolves around the person and presence of Jesus, whether you love him or whether you hate him. It's simply because Jesus does more than deal with the conditions that surround our pain. He deals with the cause in the first place. Jesus does more than change our situation. He changes us. That's what he's showing in our text. He's changing who we are because he sees the problem. I think religion exists for a couple reasons, like religion being how we answer to a couple questions in the world. And I think for the scope of humanity, we've had two questions we've tried to answer, two. One is we look out at Mars and now we have pictures of Mars which is amazing by the way and and the more that we look out and see the, the vastness of the world the more the question in us grows what is our purpose in the world the more we see the majesty of everything around us we begin to believe there's got to be a reason why we're here from the dawn of humanity to now we have kept asking what's purpose in the world why life and then I think all religions, Christianity included, tries to answer the second question, which is, is we look around and we see a world that hurts people for seemingly no cause. We see a world where people are hurting where we don't want them to. And we ask the question, why does that happen as well? What's our purpose and why does injustice exist? I think what Jesus does better than anybody else is give purpose and give reason behind and then the ability to change the situation that we're in by changing who we are. He looks at this man, he looks at this paralytic, and he says, he says, you are forgiven. He's not just fixing a leg. He's offering change for a whole person. It's radical. That's why we read verses this morning, like 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anybody's in Christ, he is a new creation. The Bible promises not just a fix to the, to, 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 to the outside conditions of the problem. The Bible says that Jesus came to deal with the cause of the problem. He's changing us. So why do we gather 2,000 years later and talk about the beauty of Jesus? Because he's more than a teacher. Because like it or not, he's changed the world, and he's changed me. <laughs> and so in this moment, if you round out the story, the Pharisees look at Jesus and say, you, you can't do that. And Jesus says, I can, and I'll quote it. It says, which is easier to you, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say stand up and walk? but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, stand up, take your stretcher, and go home. And he stood up and went home. John talks about the end of his gospel, but essentially he says all of these healings, all of these deliverances, point towards the greatest deliverance there is. People from their sins people into, once again, a right relationship with God. People saying, I have found my purpose, and I have found a way that I can change the world that I live in through the power of Jesus to forgive. The only one that can. And so what's different than Jesus, than everyone else? He doesn't just change the situation, he changes us. I need to remember that. And in the first century world, when they fought back against it, he said, I can prove it to you. What's easier I can say you're forgiven all you want, but you can't see that. But here's, let me give you something that you can't see. Pick up your mat and walk away. And so every time, hey, look, every time we see evidence of life change, we recognize that Jesus came not just to change our patience or not just to change our desires or not just to change our marriage, but to change fundamentally us. He fixes the symptoms of the problem because he fixes the cause of the problem at the same time. And we have to remember that. This is the moment when they got that, when Jesus says, "Your sins are forgiven." And nobody thinks that, that's radical, but everything else I do to deliver points towards that greater good. Why do we talk about Jesus? Because <laughs> He changes us, and you cannot deny the power of a changed life. You can't do it. And so Jesus leaves this situation with people in awe. And so for us here and now today, I think that people are at church for probably one of three reasons. One, you run in here with open arms because you recognize that you need it. Two, you've been told that you need it and you feel a little guilt and shame. And three, somebody told you you need it and brought you here against your will. Like I said, I've been there, everybody, all three. The amazing thing is that Jesus speaks to all three of those situations and says, look at the change I brought. Because people ran to Jesus in this story because they know they need him. Some people didn't were there anyway. And one man got forced to be there, you know, um, outside of him walking up. And we see the life change that Jesus brings from all of it. So what does this mean for you and for me? What does this mean for us? Quite simply, it reminds me that every time I see a change in life, that every time I see little evidences of God making me into a version of me that he created in the garden in the first place that reflects his goodness and his glory. Every time I see those little changes, I'm reminded of the big change that Jesus brought through the sacrifice on the cross. I'm reminded of the power with which we live as we follow Jesus, the power that rose Jesus from the dead. I'm reminded that Jesus is the thing that can actually change me because he looks at me and says, your sins are forgiven. So for some of us, we try really hard to change. And maybe we just need to remember that it starts and is found in Jesus. You know? It's a good place to start. That's what he means a little later on when he says, come to me and I'm gonna give you rest. Stop fighting so hard to live by all the laws. You're missing the point. Maybe sometimes it means we just need to take some stock and remember the little ways that he's changed us. I had a friend of mine who, you know, we, we all want, you guys know what the cardboard testimonies were about 10 years ago? It took the Christian world by storm. It, um, this is my job. I watch YouTube videos of Jesus things. So uh, yeah, you, you find these churches and they would write like something that they used to be on the front of the card, you know, like terrible person or angry murderer. And then they flip the card over and it'd be like patient, loving, forgiver, you know, that kind of sort of thing. It was beautiful. I want one of those too. We live in a testimony culture where we like to see the power of change happen instantly. The problem is change often doesn't happen instantly. It happens incrementally. And so maybe we just take some time this week to look back and say, how has God changed me incrementally? My friend said to me, I can't really point to a ton of change from last week to this week, but if you look at who I was 30 years ago, you see the power of Jesus in my life. Maybe it's a couple conversations about the power of Jesus in our life as we remember who we were and who we are and who we're becoming. Maybe we remember that the power to change is found in the person of Jesus. So my pastor friend, go to a really great marriage, and he planted a church in Denver, and he had a bunch of non-Jesus people hanging around him, which is kind of the point of church planting. And one of them pulled him aside and said, hey, man, you look like you have a really good marriage. Mine's struggling. And he said, yeah, mine's pretty good. And he looked at him and said, how can I have, how do you do it? And he said, if I'm going to tell you how I do it, I got to tell you about Jesus. <laughs> They're intertwined together because he is the power to change. And so when we talk about what it means to live into the change that Jesus brings, we're inspired because we see it, we're inspired because we know where it begins, we're inspired because Jesus looks beyond the symptoms of our pain and says, I see you, your sins are forgiven. In a month and a half or so, we're gonna start a podcast at CBC and it's gonna all be about how we tell stories of the change that Jesus has brought in our world. We're gonna interview CBC members and CBC people and just say, how has Jesus changed your life? How has he changed your life in good ways and ways that we can celebrate? Because as we tell those stories as the people of God, we remember the power of Jesus to go beyond just being a good teacher, but to be someone who radically changed the fabric of our society and the fabric of our lives. As somebody that does more than just say, hey, let me tell you how to forgive and to have compassion, but says your sins are forgiven. It's this beautiful moment. And here's what happens. It's why I love how this story ends. It says, when the crowd saw this, they were afraid and honored God who'd given such authority to men. So as a church, as people that follow Jesus, if we tell a story of life change that's undeniable, that leads to things like love and forgiveness and compassion, that leads to the places we've tried to get to for 200 years by learning more about the world we live in, that leads to a better kind of existence or humanity than we have right now because Jesus' life and his kingdom and his reign and his rule said, I have a better way to go because I created life. If we, le- if we live that out, people can't deny the beauty of Jesus anymore. That's exactly what happened in the first century world. Those quotes I said at the beginning, those were atheists that wrote those. (laughs) And they can't deny the beauty of Jesus to change things for the better. So in the story, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And and people are awed by the fact that A, he can claim it. And I'm awed that I've seen it a couple thousand years later. So we're going to end with communion because it is a reminder of the power that we have to change. It's a reminder of what Jesus did so that we could be forgiven. It's a reminder that all those things we see in the Levitical system that were hard and that were heavy and that were bloody, Jesus, I'm going to do that and be that for you. It's a reminder that he is the only one. He's the only one that can look at us and say your sins are forgiven because he is God and he took on our sin. It's a reminder of the change that he can bring, not just to our situation, but to us. It's a reminder of his beauty. We get to take communion, look back, and say, this is the God that we follow. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that inspires us and gives us hope. This is the God that leaves us awestruck like he did them 2,000 years ago and us today. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples in the upper room and he took a piece of bread and he grabbed it and he held it up to his disciples. He said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. It's going to be broken for you so that you might be forgiven. Take and eat and remember. And he grabbed a cup of wine, and he said, This represents my blood. It's going to be shed for you. This represents what I'm going to do for you so that you might experience the change that you need. This represents my sacrifice so that you might be forgiven. Every time you drink this, remember that you're forgiven. Take and drink. Sometimes we forget that Jesus is so much more than just a teacher. Sometimes we forget that he's so much more than just a healer. Sometimes I need to remember that Jesus does way more than just change my Monday. He changes my every day because he can. Because he's the only one that can look at me and say, Charlie, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Be made new. Let me pray.